There's the title. The picture is a picture of a book by Nick Bostrom, which was a bestseller, which, of course, be careful here, because in some sense this lecture is an attack on his ideas, but on the other hand, this was a book, a bestseller, so in academic life, you must always be aware of attacking people who've done bestsellers, because, of course, envy is one of the great drivers of academic life, so everybody's envious of bestsellers. But I shall try to keep that under control, I promise you. Um, you probably know as well as I do, better than I do, that uh, the population as a whole is, in, in the Western world at least, is increasingly worried about artificial intelligence. In Japan, much less so, interestingly. The Japanese population seem much less worried by the advance of robots. It's a cultural difference. Uh, there's a poll in the Daily Mail, if you believe it. It's, I think it's a fairly trustworthy, just a fairly small sample. that said, you know, a high percentage of people, more than half, are worried about the future of artificial intelligence and what it'll bring. And it's a th possibly a threat to the whole human race, which is precisely the message of Nick Bostrom's superintelligence book, and that's what we shall get to in this talk. Um, I shall argue this is not true. It's not a threat to the human race. You might say I would say that, wouldn't I, since I'm sort of in the artificial intelligence business. But I think there's perfectly good reasons for saying that, and that the benefits from it hugely outweigh any possible harm. So the plan of the talk will examine the arguments that AI might itself develop the capacity to harm or even destroy us all. I'll also touch on the possibility that someone might design malevolent AI, a different idea, the same effect, but somebody, some human, might design malevolent AI as a weapon of war, a strategic weapon to, to achieve the same end. Um, how can we, so the question arises in both cases, how can we control artificial intelligence, perhaps by making them ethical, so we shall start with some ethics, I'm afraid, if you can stand that. It'll be fairly lightweight and not very, um, not very uh, arduous. Um, an interesting fact that it might not be obvious to you, it wasn't obvious to me, is that people seem to prefer those who work with moral rules rather than with calculating consequences. The, t the great divide in ethical theory and philosophy is between thinking of ethics as a set of rules of things you must and mustn't do, and thinking of out the consequences of what you do and whether the results are good or bad. People associate the first group with the philosopher Kant and the second group with the philosopher Mill. But that divide still runs right through ethics, although there are other ethical possibilities as well. Those are the two main competing trends. Um, uh, someone at the Oxford Martin School, Molly Crockett and her team, have, have shown that people much prefer, interestingly, they've done research on this, people much prefer those who work with moral rules. That's interesting in itself. Um, you might think, oh, surely politics, everyday life, isn't it all about working out the balance of advantage and disadvantage? When it comes to ethical and moral judgments, that's not how people are. They want to think that people have principles, whether or not they abide by them. What follows from this? So, although humans might prefer to deal with humans... Uh, and even artificial intelligences having a certain kind of ethics. Still remember, it's up to us what kind of ethics artificial intelligence will have. I mean, we might say, given the result I've just told you from Molly Crockett, that, oh, OK, so we should make artificial intelligence work with principles like we prefer people to. But keep in mind all the time that that's our choice when creating artificial intelligences. It's a, it's a fallacy to assume, and many do, and some of the people we'll be talking about today do, that... Automata must be consequentialists. Automata must be entities that think in terms of consequences and weigh the good against the bad. In other words, the very thing that Molly Crockett said, people don't like to see another in people. And we might ask the question, do we have to have those in automata? And the answer is no, we don't. We can choose that. Now, the superintelligence doctrine, I'll use that as shorthand for Nick Bostrom's very powerful critique. He's not the only person arguing this, but he happens to be, where I live in Oxford, the, the local man selling books with this theme, so I'm taking him as a, given his long and, and uh, very thorough and detailed book. Uh, but you'll find that there are lots of people, many of them billionaires, who hold the same view, and it's a, a view that's about, and it, it coincides, the view that artificial intelligence is dangerous, and it coincides with the popular mood. I'm taking on the popular mood here, I'm taking on a clutch of billionaires like Elon Musk, uh, giant intellects like Stephen Hawking, who thought this too. There's a lot of very powerful intellects, very powerful money, on the side of the idea that AI is very dangerous. Um, another budget of fallacies, if that's the right phrase, uh, the, the magazine Wired, which may or may not be your bedtime reading, had an entertaining article uh, a year or so ago called, um, Shall we, could we elect an AI president? Uh, you can see what events out there in America were that 
brought this on, as it were. Um, you know, <laughs> could, could we do better? Could we do better with a machine? Um, the AI, this is just a bit of academic nitpicking now. You can shut off for this bit if you prefer. Um, but the wired discussion of this, which could have been much more entertaining than it was, was in fact rather a failure. I mean, because wired then told you that, well, an automatic president could act in lots of different ways, and, but they didn't quite tell you which way it should act or they'd think it would. One was that it, a machine-learned decision-maker, that decision-maker was a computer that worked by machine learning, would, both, would be random and inscrutable. You wouldn't know why it did anything it did. You would have no idea it would be random. So it would have random behavior. So they said, look, that's like the president we've got. That was their political message, of course. And then, and then they, so they said, um, oh, well, no, they also said, well, so like all presidents, the AI leader would seek to maximize the satisfaction majority of voters within the confines of the law. Puff, that's what we were calling a consequentialist, right? The doctrines of John Stuart Mill. Work out the consequences and see what's best. It was, it's what politicians always claim to do, although perhaps as we know, they don't, of course. Um, but that is what, when asked, politicians rarely claim to be acting on principles. Re not really, not ethical principles. They claim to be acting for the greatest good of the greatest number. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and then a, a third view. Um, here, let me give you this quote. Uh, the Tesla chief executive officer, Elon Musk, he's one of the AI's dangerous crowd. You've read about him with the Tesla and the space program. Uh, raises the example of an AI built to grow and harvest strawberries. To fulfill its primary mission of picking as many strawberries as possible, an AI might conclude it be reasonable to wipe out humanity and turn the planet into a huge strawberry farm. Um, a, a good goal, uh, crazy methods. I mean, you wouldn't want an AI president like that. That kind of example keeps coming back. Keep that in your mind. In the Bostrom book, we shall, whose doctrines we should look at a little, that is the kind of example that he's very fond of, that what AI would do if it got in charge would be to go and make paper clips, and it would take all the... His example, it would make paper clips, and it would take all the energy resources of the world to make paper clips. And you think to yourself, why would it do that? I mean, why on earth would you entertain such a possibility? Um, what is Bostrom Superintelligence? I keep referring to it. I'll call it SI sometimes in the notes. Here's some quotes that give you the idea of what the doctrine is that this talk is opposing itself to. It intellects that greatly outperform, outperform the best current human minds currently across very general cognitive domains. This is where Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking all take... Bostrom's thesis very seriously. Um, this goes back to people like Kurzweil, Udowski, I don't know if you've heard of them, the singularity movement. This was a, a, Kurzweil's a man, an eccentric individual with a role in the history of artificial intelligence. He was the first man who invented, who got a working version of the dictation typewriter. That alone made him very famous. A typewriter you could talk to and it would listen to you and type up what you said, which of course is now comes with your Mac laptop. Um, but he was the first person to do that, which gives him, unlike many, unlike almost everybody else I shall mention, that meant that he was at least a practitioner of AI. Nobody else I've mentioned was, ever, has been, which, to my view, somewhat diminishes their grip on the whole thing. Um, but they raised this notion of the singularity, which was going to be, um, this is a key point behind the, the, the Bostrom thesis, that there'll be a tipping point, a moment after which there'll be changes so great we can't go back. And after that point in time, an artificial intelligence can take over and there's no turning back. Um, humans seem to like this idea of tipping points. It's like, it's like the millennium at the year 1000 when Jesus returned but failed to turn up. Um, it's that moment that there will be a tipping point when everything changes. Those of you who follow climate change know very well that it's a deep, deep, thing in the climate change inventory that there's a tipping point. If this tipping point comes, it's all over, and it might be next week. Um, there's no evidence in any of these cases that there are such points, but it might be useful to believe it, but there's no reason to believe it. Um, this generality of intellect point is extremely important in the first quote. Um, that's because we already have so many computers that do lots of individual things better than we do. That's been true since pocket calculators. They could do arithmetic far faster than we can. They can divide big numbers. We can't without weeks of work. Um, uh, the chess and go champions are now machines. Um, we know all the things they can do that we can't. Uh, for 20, 30 years, uh, computers have been landing planes in fog in your local airport, um, which makes you wonder why people worry so much about automated cars. 
in the very near future because they've been travelling for years in planes that land and take off automatically. It's just that they don't tell you that. It doesn't pay pilots to tell you that they only work five or six hours a year. That's the actual figure of what a major pilot works. Did you know that? Pilots are paid enormous salaries to work five or six hours a year because, of course, the plane is doing all the flying. But it doesn't seem to worry people. Um, this is a very old idea, like all the ideas. They all go back forever. A great, a great Englishman called I.J. Good in 1965. You can read that quote. You may not want to hear me read it out to you. It's a bit long if you don't like print on screens. But in 65, um, Good was saying that we can conceive of an ultra-intelligent machine and it might be the last machine we ever need because if it's ultra-intelligent, it'll learn how to make other machines and then that's okay. That's it. It's over now. It can make all the machines and we can sit back and we don't have to do anything else and it can carry on the whole field of artificial intelligence for us. So, it's, again, it's got, it's got an element of the tipping point in it. There'll be a point where if we have this thing, everything's changed, can't go back, sit back and enjoy the strawberries and the paper clips. Um, this is the dull bit. This is the dullest bit in the lecture. Um, Bostrom doesn't really have a lot of very concrete arguments. Um, and I shall maintain throughout this talk that one of my worries personally about Bostrom's work is that he's like a man who's read too much science fiction. If you read science fiction in this area, then you know how awful things could be. Um, my family and I sat and watched 2001 again two, a few nights ago, which of course was made in 1968-69. Do you realise how old 2001 is? You'll see a picture of Hal, the computer from 2001 in a moment. Um, and I, I find it hard to believe that 2001 is 50 years old. It's where the computer takes over the spaceship and tries to kill the crew. It's the beginning of all this. Um, Arthur C. Clarke's great story. Um, it's been around a long time, the idea, this idea in science fiction. Older than it has, really, in intellectual speculation. And I do believe that many of the people who are most afraid of it have been too exposed to science fiction and can't see the difference between science fiction and science fact, which is getting harder and harder. I mean, of course, science fiction, science fact, you can ask people all the time, is there something that does X? And they often don't know. They think it's here when it isn't. They think it isn't here when it is. A famous case for, of this for me, given my own interest, was machine translation. You could ask people about 1980, 1990, if there was machine translation that really worked. And a lot of people would say, yes, yes, it's been here for ages, you know, really works, yeah. A lot of people would say, no, 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 it's completely impossible. If you were lucky, you could get somebody who said both. But... I mean, at that time, there was these, 50 years ago, there were these two completely contradictory beliefs. In fact, it was there, and some people knew and some people didn't. But of those who didn't, they thought you couldn't have it. And this is why the science fiction, science fact barrier is such a tricky one. Here's some of Bostrom's arguments. He thinks that superintelligence may come because of speed up, um, that... Uh, to a very, here's a quote, to a very clever mind, events in the external world would appear to unfold in slow motion because it's moving so fast and doing things so fast. Wow, I mean, this is the oldest of ideas, isn't it? Didn't you read H.G. Wells years ago? Didn't you read The New Accelerator, the great H.G. Wells story where the man takes the New Accelerator pill and he moves so fast that when he goes through a room, no one sees him because he's in the room and out again before they can see him. And um, there's something very funny about this whole idea. It was brilliant when H.G. Wells did it 150, 100 years ago or more, more, more. Uh, but now, I mean, there's something strange. I don't think it's possible to conceive of what it is to have a consciousness that, as it were, where everything moves so much faster than ours does. I don't think that's what we call consciousness. But leave that aside. The actual argument that speed will be an important element in superintelligence I think it's such a weak argument. If you work in computing at all, you know that speed is a very weak measure of things. It's great that computers are so much faster than they were, of course, they can do lots more. But it's a trade-off. There's a, tra a classical trade-off in computing between speed and search, the fast or the breadth of what you can find. And if, and if you can find enough knowledge in a computing problem, it may not matter if you can do it quite slowly. I mean, the clearest example of this is the brain. Insofar as the brain is like a computer, and it isn't very, but insofar as it is, it's a very, very slow computer indeed. The brain is a very slow machine. But isn't it amazing how clever it is? Much cleverer than all the things we're talking about. Speed, forget it. People, one of my problems when I first moved to America was I had this illusion that um, people who spoke, because I came from Cambridge, I thought that people who spoke very fast were much cleverer. And uh, it's an illusion you could easily pick up in my days at Cambridge. And when I went to America, I found there were lots of very, very intelligent people who speak extremely slowly. 
And this was a bit of a shock, but believe me, speed and intelligence are not, as you know from yourself, life, not tightly related. Co collectivity. Um, Bostrom has this idea that, and he's right about this, something to do with our corporate intelligence is connect our human corporate intelligence is connected with our ability to work as collectives. The people who, the thousands of slaves who worked to build the pyramids were doing something extraordinary. The fact you could organise such large teams of people to do something so complex so long ago is amazing. As he correctly says, that's nothing to the number of people you have to assemble to build a, a jumbo jet or a space shuttle now. This is an this is an action of thousands of people of enormous complexity. Whether or that leads anywhere at the end to saying that in the end it will help to bring on superintelligence from things that can simulate our collectivity, I don't see the connection, frankly. Um, big collectives, small collectives. If you look at the nations that win the Nobel Prizes, Britain, of course, you think has the most per capita, and it does, but only if you exempt the very tiny countries. By paradox, the countries that have the most Nobel Prizes, which usually means one, uh, are people like Iceland, who had one Nobel Prize, but hardly anybody lives there. So you get this paradox that the countries with the most Nobel Prizes per capita are very, very tiny nations. It's a bit of a cheat, really, but you get the idea. So the idea that very big collectives produce the best intelligence is hmm, refuted by number of Nobel Prize winners in Iceland, doesn't it? Isn't it? Quality. Um, this is the, his thing about IQ is increasing, and therefore, as human IQ increases, this somehow leads us to believe that superintelligence and machines will be a natural extension of that. Well, you don't have to look very far in Wikipedia to know that the idea that human intelligence is systematically increasing is very dubious. There's a thing called the Flynn effect, which says just that, that human intelligence is increasing decade by decade, surely through history. Um, I personally find this very hard to believe. I think it's an artefact of measuring and an artefact of the tests. I can't prove that. I'm not a psychologist. But if you read the complexity of English prose of the 19th century, if you read people like Henry James and you realise the average people could master sentences like that and now they can't, you really begin to wonder about the Flynn effect. You really do. Um, this is just, this is completely unfair, this slide. I apologise for it, but I can't resist. Bostrom is dangerous enough, foolish enough, to put up an equation for the arrival of superintelligence. I wouldn't dare do such a thing. I admire the man's guts. Here it is. DT, well, no, no, let me get DI by DT. Cha that means, looks as if it means change of intelligence by time in standard calculus notation equals O over R, where O is the optimization power. Things getting better all the time. And R is divided by recalcitrance, where recalcitrance is... I understand what he means by recalcitrance. It's the kind of drag effects in research and human work that tends to pull things back, inefficiencies of organisation and so on. The trouble is, once you look at that formula, you think, haven't I seen that somewhere before? Yes, you have. You've seen it in O-level physics. It's Ohm's law, isn't it? Do you remember? Um, yeah. Uh, I, I by over V over R. You just differentiate that. You get DI by DT equals, ooh, pretty close. Ohm's law is foot current equals voltage over resistance. You know that from Big 15. Um, yeah, well, I, I think it's just, it's not what we call mathematics. It's what we call decorative mathematics. It doesn't actually give you anything, does it? Um, does any of this depend, the arrival of superintelligence and its danger, does any of it depend on how much superintelligence knows? You, in, you, it seems a reasonable idea that it does. It seems a reasonable idea that something that knows everything is more intelligent. Somebody said recently, and I, it struck me as right, that one of the things our grandparents would find most astonishing about our age wouldn't be planes or spaceships. They knew they were coming. They knew about trains. They knew about planes. Um, it would be the fact that in your pocket there is a phone that knows everything. That they couldn't have imagined. Nobody predicted it. That everybody would carry in their pocket a little device that knew everything. And this is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you just take it for granted now. You're having an argument with somebody and you'll say, oh, we'll settle that. Boop, boop. Wikipedia, bing, you're wrong. And you know this. We all know this. It ruins dinner parties. Um, <laughs> Doesn't Oscar Wilde say somewhere that, you know, nothing ruins an argument like facts? And uh, we now all have that power, don't we? But there was a famous program built by IBM called Watson some years ago, not very long ago, 10, 15 years ago. I knew the team, some of them that did it. Um, 
And Watson won the Jeopardy game. Uh, here we go. Oh, no, sorry. Going the wrong way. There you go. There's the Jeopardy game. Watson played the Jeopardy game and won in America. Jeopardy game is the clever game where they give you the answer and you have to guess the question. And there you can see from the scores that Jeopardy has won much more money. The machine, Watson, has won much more money than the clever people on either side of him, right? And it won. And um, it was, Watson was a very clever piece of programming, okay? Um, uh, the trouble was, Watson was a complete fraud in the following sense. Well, it was several different things at once. It was a cheat, and insofar as it wasn't a cheat, it was real programming, real technology. It wasn't very advanced at all. It was what you might call state-of-the-art it didn't have any representations of knowledge or knowledge of the world. It had a huge data bank of masses of texts from newspapers and public prints and academic articles. And it could search these very fast and had a good algorithm for, given the answer to the question you gave it, like, well, the kind of example was about Chicago airports. This city has one airport named after a baseball star and one airport named after a, um, a general or something. Chicago, I think, is like that. It doesn't matter, something like that. And the game is to say Chicago, okay, because you've searched for those things and come back and done a bit of syntactic twiddle. Bang, Chicago. And two things are important about this and, and why it doesn't um, impress me, I may impress you. Um, the technology behind Watson was what's called natural language processing, which is my own home discipline. And it was far from being futuristic and genius level. It was state-of-the-art of the 1990s. It was the best you could do at Stanford and CMU and worked very well, but there was nothing futuristic about it. It was a very nice piece of programming of searching texts and getting answers out of it. So futurism, forget it. The cheat in Watson was this. Um, humans have this thing called, what's it called? The brain the brain muscle delay or something. There's some technical word for that. All it means is that when you think a thought and move your hand, it takes a few microseconds for your hand to move because the signal has to go down your arm, right? <laughs> but Jeopardy works on pressing a button. Watson doesn't have an arm. Watson doesn't have a few microseconds delay while the signal goes from its brain down to its finger and press the button. Watson can press the button right away. <laughs> so, of course, it won every time. It could always press the button quicker. It didn't have an arm. If to have been cheated, to, to avoid cheating, they should have equipped it like they do with jockeys where they put, you know, metal, metal lumps in jockeys' saddlebags. And they should have given it an arm with fingers and then things wouldn't have been the same. Also, Bostrom as a throwaway benefit says, if and when takeoff occurs, this is the singularity, it will be explosive. Well, again, how could he possibly know that? How intelligent will a uh, a superintelligence have to be. Um, here again, he's not reassuring. I'm sorry if this lecture sounds like a, um, a, a hack job. I don't like giving lectures like boot, put boot into people, but I can't resist with this one because he is the best example of this claim and I just have this deep urge to attack it. So I'm sorry if it all sounds a bit personal. He happens also to be a rather miserable sort of Swedish person, so that makes it, that makes it easier, but you shouldn't combine business with pleasure. Um, he says a, a superintelligence will, and I quote, want to send out von Neumann probes into the galaxy. I've forgotten for what von Neumann probes are. They're some kind of spaceships that do experiments. Well, I suppose it might, if it had spare time from all that strawberry picking, all that making of paper clips. I mean, why on earth does he want to do that? I don't know. How does he know? I mean, why do superintelligences want to do crazy things? I mean, let's face it, if there were automatic superintelligences, who knows what they'd want to do? I mean, the worrying thing would be they'd want to kill us, which is his main claim. But why other things? Why probes in the galaxy? They might be completely busy and happy here with the strawberries. I don't know. Um, one of the oddest things about the claim is that the superintelligent would have permanent goals. And we couldn't control these, and they might not be our goals, and we might not like them. Now, ask yourself that. Well, if you're, like, if you're like me, you think that most things in life and science should be seen through the prism of evolution, the theory of evolution. Um, that's an extraordinary unevolutionary view. Why do we have permanent goals? I don't. Why should it? It might have changed its goals in a decade's time. It might think of something else it would like. I mean, we have permanent goals, food, sex, sleep. But, I mean, after that, it's... They come and go. Um, why should a superintelligence have permanent goals? I, I see no reason whatever to believe that's true. Also, and interestingly, he believes there'd only be one of them. Because if there were more than one, they'd compete and one destroy the other. They wouldn't get together and cooperate. 
if you're following Game of Thrones and seeing the sad, sad lessening of the number of dragons, especially, you know, when one of the dragons goes rogue and has to be brought down by the other dragons, um, that's a very good model of what's going on here. Um, Bostrom believes that superintelligences would be like that. They'd go for each other until there was only one. Well, again, this seems to me just bad science fiction. Why? In an evolutionary view, if they were behaved at all like the best of humans, we all know the best of humans advance by being cooperative. We can live in cities of 20 million because we're so amazingly cooperative. Surely they'd find that out, wouldn't they? It's obvious. I mean, people who start trade wars have forgotten for a few moments that being cooperative is better than not being cooperative. And, but this usually goes away. It's, a, it's an aberration. But, 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 but superintelligences would know this, wouldn't they? The AI presidents wouldn't make this mistake, would they? I mean, no. Uh, uh, long ago in the history of artificial intelligence, there was a man at MIT, Seymour Papert, a South African, and one of his great claims was that artificial intelligence to progress and to benefit everybody shouldn't aim at superhuman goals at all. It shouldn't aim at things even that... He didn't even like the idea of computer chess, which he thought very few people can do. He thought that the great aim of artificial intelligence should be to mimic the things that we all do without thinking and easily seeing, hearing, talking, moving about. And that really is how it's come about. I'm always surprised, driving cars, I'm always surprised that the computer chess and Go have got as much publicity as they ha can, as they have, because they're such minority sports. Why is it a great proof of the, the, of the benefits and advancement of machine learning that can be the World Go champion? Because there's only one World Go champion, and that's not interesting to most people. So Papert, I think, was right about what the goals of AI should be. Um, the main thing that you take away from the work I'm discussing is the existential catastrophe, which is his relabeling of the tipping point. The, uh, Bostrom's argument that there'll be a catastrophe where um, the machine will achieve strategic advantage. It'll be the first mover in many fields. It'll get... Um, Great advantage from that. That sounds like business school talk, and it is. Um, there'll be orthogonality, which means its goals will not be aligned to our goals. They'll be at cross-purposes to them, and they, they'll be unrelated to ours and will bring us to an end. Um, again, this is much too, too complicated, really, to want to go into. I'm sorry about the small print on the slide. I hate it when people do it to me. And also that he thinks that the machine will do deceptively good behaviour. It will, like a sort of lion that wants to fool you until you come into its cage and it eats you. It will behave well at first and hide its true intentions. This is a bit like Howl the Machine in 2001, and then it's got you suckered in and you think it's a nice, friendly machine, and it isn't. Um, again, um, much of this analysis is not from what the book claims to be about, which is artificial intelligence, where actually, frankly, the author knows very little. Northern philosophy, which is his professional affiliation, knows very little philosophy, really... I think it's interesting, the book, and it is an interesting book, I'm, I recommend it to you, derives from business management and business studies. All this stuff about first movement and, and um, strategic advantage of first movers, these are all doctrines from business studies. And if you actually look at the references and the people he cites, you'll see that, that business studies is one of the great influences on him. That's not a bad thing, don't get me wrong. I mean, business studies is the foundation of much of our life and comfort, it's, it's very odd, I think, to put your worries about superintelligence into a business studies context. I mean, he might be right. It might go that way. Um, a superintelligence aimed at destroying us might have learned from business school, might have picked up those doctrines. I, 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 it doesn't feel right to me, but that, again, may be in the world of hunch. I see no firm arguments. Um, of course, again, there's so much old fiction that comes to mind if you know The Sorcerer's Apprentice, the old folk tale set to music by Ducat. I mean, you know, I mean, so much of that image of the, the strawberry picker, the, the paperclip maker, if you've seen the Disney movie of a million years ago, it's The Sorcerer's Apprentice with the buckets, endlessly filling buckets. I mean, so much of that kind of mad science fiction lurks behind all this. Now, I told you Hal would be with us. This is the shot from the 1968 movie. That's the red eye. All you see of Hal in 2001, if you haven't seen it, is the red eye of Hal looking at you and listening. And the great moment in the movie, I, I give you this spoiler, is when the spacemen go into a closed room so they can talk and Hal can't hear them. But they forget. He can see through the porthole and he can lip read. Um, 
as I said this already, it's much harder now to distinguish scientific fact, science fiction from science fact. There's contradictory claims now. It used to be about machine translation. Now in the press all the time, you hear contradictory claims about automated cars. Some people say they'll be here in five years. Some people say, no, no, they won't be here for ages because they can't manage roundabouts. They can't manage small, crowded uh, streets in Oxford and Cambridge. Um, in fact, of course, as you possibly know from the facts, um, automated cars have done millions and millions of miles, both in Britain and America, and they're out there. They're roaming about. You can sometimes spot them by the little things on top of them. Um, they're here. It's just a question of whether they're let loose and we can go and buy them. They'll probably first come in trains of big trucks on freeways. That's where they'll be safest and least objectionable, and except by, of course, truck drivers. Um, yeah. Um, don't need to read this slide. It, it, the idea is very simple. He does focus in on what's terribly important, which is why we started with the ethics, the ethics mini lecture. Um, how could you load values into the machine? This, in fact, is where much of the intelligent discussion now is in what to do about artificial intelligence and where it should go. It's in value loading. How can we get ethical values into machines so that they do what we want? and they don't do things we don't want. The trouble is, much of this has fallen to the hands, not of brilliant philosophers in their rooms, but in terms of sort of European Union committees on the future of artificial intelligence, which, I mean, you know, I've read their documents, and they're absolutely bone-crunching. I mean, they say all the things you could have said in half a page, and they take 175 pages to say. I mean, in fact, it's very hard to say anything very intelligent about this, except, yes, yes, please put rules into them so they don't do bad things. Um, you want... Go back to the very first slides. You want to put into the values like don't kill people. Of course, everybody, Isaac Asimov, the, the great science fiction writer 60 years ago, wrote down laws of robotics. He started this 60 years, 70 years ago. The laws of robotics where one of the things was not to do harm to humans. The trouble with that is that one, and I shall talk about that next year if you ever come back, um, one of the great recipients of public funds now is automated weapons in virtually all the major countries of the world, which is precisely the construction of very, very expensive AI objects, precisely designed to kill people and to be soldiers and to win wars without loss of any casualties on your side. So it's not going to be the case, I can promise you, that they're going to put into AI things like, you must not kill people. Already America, and with a little help from us, has been conducting substantial drone wars in Syria, killing off lots of people, as you know. Some of them targeted, some of them accidental, some of them wedding parties, some of them jihadi John, who nobody seemed very worried about the loss of. But uh, that is, to some degree, an automated weapon kill program. Actually, it's not strictly true because those drones are controlled by individuals in somewhere in the American desert. But they could equally well be acting autonomously and doing the same thing. Um, where do these values come from? Should the, will superintelligences be hostile to humans? Um, I see no reason to believe this, and you can bring in here almost a theological argument, which I quite like. Um, if you look at the history of human religions, human religions on the whole um, tend to assume that the creator of humanity, if there is one, uh, we are well disposed towards that creator. We put up cathedrals and churches and temples and mosques to them and worship them. So if we have a creator, human beings on the whole have thought, good chap. Nice stuff, let's tell him how good he is. Sing hymns. Um, on the whole, we don't want to bump him off. I mean, there have been a few mad people who wanted to kill God or declare him dead, but they've been very much the minority. The, the basic attitude's been, as you know, positive. Um, well, why should superintelligence be any different? Why should they be hostile to us, their creator, rather than putting up temples and worshipping us and telling us how wonderful we are? We could take with a bit of that, couldn't we? I mean, that wouldn't be all bad. Um, again, why not? I mean, again, just the sheer assumption that these things will be hostile to us, their creator, it makes no sense to me at all. I think the opposite is at least as likely. Oh. What can be done to ward off catastrophe, if you ask Bostrom? Well, he's got a set of remedies, and they're, they're pretty sort of... Um, well, some, some of them are ludicrous and some of them are quite sensible. One is put it in a box without any arms. Yeah, okay, mm, that seems sensible. I mean, I, we might have thought of that. I mean, your your, your five-year-old child might have thought of that too. Um, give it incentives to be nice. Mm, absolutely. If you know what incentives count for for it and what it wants and what it likes and what it eats. Mm, mm, 
Not so, not so easy, is it? Um, stunting it to make it less clever. That's, of course, what happens at the end of 2001. Again, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm so fresh from seeing this wonderful Kubrick movie again. But if you remember, the final scene is where um, he goes around with a screwdriver, slowly unscrewing its main memory to stop it killing him. And slowly its voice gets slower and deeper. And if you've ever seen the movie, you will know, spoiler coming, that at the end it begins to sing Daisy, Daisy. Yeah, really, really. And it's a wonderful moment because it learnt Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do, when it was being built. And as it declines, as it's being stunted, as its intelligence goes down, it starts singing Daisy again in a spaceship. It's an extraordinary moment, I have to tell you. Um, you might install tripwires, he says, in case it goes too far. Yeah, that seems sensible. You'd like to put something into a programme that you knew if it was going too far it was beginning to do things you didn't like. Um, uh, a lot of suggestions are, as it were, motivational. Um, he's following along with what I referred to as Asimov's law of robotics. You might install limited kinds of goals or try to set out goals in a simpler, safer system. This is the general way that those committees now are talking about AI, safety in the future, are talking. And it, it's common sense. Um, it's common sense in, um, in automated cars. We'll come to that in a second. Um, there are other ways of thinking about this. I mean, there's a man called Thomas Schelling who has actually done this kind of work, but in a much more, in my view, intelligent way than what we've been talking about, um, uh, without falling back on the oldest stuff of the laws of robotics, which have been subject to a great deal of analysis and are not fully coherent, although if you've never heard of Asimov's law of robotics, they're well worth reading, uh, just to see where all this started from. Uh, Schelling's argued that um, using quite complex things called game theory, theoretical principles, you can extend, um, extend those principles in game theory terms so you can in some way define constraints on what an automated entity must not do under any circumstances. That won't be things as simple as don't kill because you might be building weapons. Or in fact, what it must not do will depend on what kind of intelligence it is and for what purpose. But there's something right along those lines. There, there will be technical solutions. It's a little like the issue of, you know, what technology could you put on the Irish border that would solve all the problems? You've got one group of people saying, yes, yes, we can do that, it's easy. Another group of people saying, no, you can't possibly do that, it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's a bit like that. You've got two groups of people now saying, yes, yes, if we work hard, we can have technologies that will do that for us. Um, it's worth remembering here a man who died not too long ago called Hubert Dreyfus at Berkeley. He was one of the few philosophers who really did understand AI, in a way Nick Bostrom, I have to say, doesn't. Hubert Dreyfus critiqued AI from the 1960s onwards and did AI a lot of good. People listened to what he said. But one of his key ideas was this. He was steeped in continental existentialist philosophy. European continental. And he argued that um, you couldn't really have a proper artificial intelligence in the future unless it had grown up like we had. Unless it had grown up and had the experiences we had of growing up. Now, at the moment, no one knows how to do that. But that might become a possibility in the future, which might be a very useful problem to do, of, of useful possibility to pursue, because it might be the way in which the way in which goals are instilled in us. After all, most of us, we don't go around killing our neighbours. I mean, people who do extraordinary and bizarre and tiny fraction of the population, we somehow, by growing up, know that you're nice to your neighbours broadly and or at least polite. You don't kill them and you don't stab people in the street. Um, maybe that's something to do with growing up and absorbing values in a way we don't fully understand. Maybe Dreyfus is right and there's something there... Um, for us. Uh, too much writing on this. I apologise when I see this. Um, you've heard of this already, though. Um, where we came in, back to ethics. The thing called the trolley problem, it looks like that. Um, uh, Philippa Foote, a philosopher at Oxford many years ago, invented a thing called the trolley problem. She invented it just as a teaching tool in ethics, in philosophy. But it's been taken up again in recent times and has become a major discussion point in connection with automated cars. That's the sort of diagram you see with the trolley problem. There's a person standing by the lever... And the person has to decide whether or not to pull the lever and stop. The tram will go ahead and kill those five people who don't know it's coming. But if the person with the lever pulls it, it will be diverted and only kill one person. So it's a classic example of what we were calling consequentialist ethics. And it's better to kill one person than five. So pull the lever. 
and this has been made more sophisticated and oh if the you know if the five people were fat people maybe you should kill them and if they were smokers maybe it's all right and so on so i mean this discussion has got a long way but the discussion has become lively again because of automated cars because Automated cars, which I said are with us already and increasingly going to be with us and are going to get more and more sophisticated, um, just think you'll be able to go back to cocktail cabinets in the back of your car again. Isn't that wonderful? Like they used to have in Rolls Royces. Like all these pleasures, they're going to be completely democratized. Only very rich people had cocktail cabinets in the back of Rolls Royces. Very soon, you'll have an automated car with a cocktail cabinet in the back of your car. Isn't that wonderful? Anyway, um, automated cars are going to have to make just choices very like the Philippa Foote's trolley problem. She's dead and she couldn't have realised how her thinking would be get picked up again because all these people now in AI and connected to all automated vehicles talk about it. Of course, it's the real question. If the car can see there's a cyclist there, there's a truck coming head on and it has to hit one or the other, it will make a decision. The tricky bit that Philippa Foote didn't think of, which is you're going to think about when you have one of these, is whether one of its rules is to protect its driver. That's a thought that doesn't come into the trolley problem, doesn't it? Would you like to have an, a, a brand of automated car that said, well, above all, we're going to protect you in the driving, in not the driving seat, sorry, in the cocktail cabinet seat. We're going to protect you. And that may be at the expense of cyclists or pedestrians. This is a very tricky one. I mean, nobody really wants to think about these, but we are going to have to think about precisely these things. There are very dark, I'm almost at the end now. There are very dark figures think, lurking out there as well. There's a connection between um, superintelligence thinking, of which I've given you a very cheap and superficial overview, and what you might call trans, dark transhumanism. There's that the singularity might not come only from these kinds of superintelligent machines, the, super, the singularity, the tipping point, but from the catastrophe might come from us augmenting humans as we have them now, with extra brains, extra limbs, extra strong bodies. There's all kinds of wonderful research out in robotics in my institute in Florida, there are experts in it, of exoskeletons, where the human is inside a skeleton that now allows a, a weakling to lift a two-ton piece of steel, because you're wearing an exoskeleton like a crab, and you can lift it, and soldiers dressed in those, they might not be able to run very fast, but they could sure lift things, you know. Um, that will humans augmented by mental and physical technologies themselves become a danger to us all? And many of the characters, Peter Thiel, if you know who he is in America, is a person who's pushing this. Um, so superintelligence, in a way, as we've discussed it, is another face of a future of technologically enhanced beings. But there are two ways of getting there, as I say, well, more than two. One is through enhancing us, and one is through the kind of superintelligence we've been talking about, um, some more optimistic than others. Uh, some see enhancing us as evolutionary humanism and insist in painting it as positive. I mean, everybody here, there must be some people in this audience with fake hips and knees. I bet there are. wish I had one. Um, as you can see from me crawling up here, um, you are in the vanguard of the human race who is being, as it were, technologically enhanced. There will become all kinds of enhancements in the future. We don't know what form they'll take. Some of them will almost certainly be mental. Um, so there will be humans as, as tools for technology, and as it were, as well as being people running the tools. Um, it, those of you who like to go back and like Greek words will know that this is all path of the old Greek doctrine of Gnosticism, that um, only a few know how things are really going. I mean, the, 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 the dark transhumanism and the superintelligence movements are part of what I would think of as a modern Gnosticism, a Greek doctrine of 2,000 years ago that only a few people know the truth, only a few people understand technology, and they're really in charge of it. I mean, it may even be true. Uh, you know, those people who believe that capitalism is all controlled by half a dozen people in some room in Hungary. I mean, they believe some version of that too. I mean, they're, it's easy to believe. I don't believe any of these theories. Um, they might be true. Of course they might. I don't believe them for a moment. I don't think technology is controlled by a group of people who know things. Certainly the billionaires who talk about technology, like Thiel and, and, um, and Musk, um, they have very loud voices because they have very large bank accounts. And if they put their money where their mouth is, as with Musk's space program, which is admirable, but nevertheless, you shouldn't get the idea from that. The same how they control the technology, they most certainly don't. It's very, very widespread, and increasingly so. I and mean, with the spread of technology in China and other countries, there's no sense in which any particular piece of the world controls these technologies now.
<coughs> I just mentioned this in passing. Um, there's an institute in Cambridge now called the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, which has grown up, not because of Bostrom, but these things have grown up together, these movements. And um, there you can see that Cambridge, the Cambridge Institute recently published its set of what it thought were the chief risks of possible malevolence. That might be not just machines acting on their own, but humans, as I said earlier, gaining control of artificial intelligence for malevolent purposes. Um, drones seeking individuals to assassinate. I'm surprised we haven't seen more of this. I mean, I, a drone could easily fly in the window of 10 Downing Street. Have you thought about it? You must have done. If the IRA, with all their amateurism, could lob a mortar shell into the garden of number 10, as they did, and John Major had to dive under a table... Given how far we've come since those days, I'm amazed that people haven't tried using drones in public life to assassinate people. Thank God they haven't. But it's not, it, it can't, you can go and buy a drone for two or three hundred pounds. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, uh, automated cars as bombs? Surely this will be true. Automated cars were the basis of weapons, too, of course. Think of a thousand Volkswagens going across Europe in a flock with a very big gun in each. I mean, automated cars will be weapons. Of course they will. They'll be cheap weapons too. Not aircraft carriers costing three billion, but just a, a heavily armed VW coming at you, 10,000 of them, and however many you take out, you can't take out all of them. Um, fake videos of the famous. I mean, these we're on the edge of these already. It's already quite straightforward to use AI techniques to make a fake video of a famous person doing or saying something stupid. Um, sex movies of famous politicians could be faked now quite straightforwardly. I'm surprised they aren't. Aren't we lucky that things haven't gone further than they have? You can read this. Tech assisting coup d'etat. We sort of have these slightly already. Um, uh, Russia's attack on Estonia 10 years ago and the shutting down of the Estonian um, internet was a sort of hint of how things could be in the future. Employment loss, I don't count this in the same area. That's another whole story of together of replacement of jobs. That, of course, can be seen as wholly positive or wholly negative, um, and so on. Um, I've talked about this already, I think, um, that both those possibilities cover both superintelligence, which is AI self-development, and machine-aided intelligence, the malevolent use of weapons. Um, this is perhaps an over-technical bit, but some of you might like technical bits. Let's throw it in. Um, one aspect of this that sounds a little techie, but I think is relevant, is if you want to protect yourself against these things, or society wants to protect itself, is this connected to a very important issue out there, which is whether hardware and software are closed or open? You probably know there's a lot of open source software out there. You've heard of this. Linux is one of the most famous cases. Um, one of the big differences between Apple machines and, and uh, PCs is that Apple machines run on open source software. They run in the form of Linux and uh, PCs on the whole don't, which means that you don't have any access, public access, if you're an expert, to a software that runs PCs famously. I mean, that was how Bill Gates made his money for software for PCs, and it was a completely closed and proprietary thing, which he, of course, didn't write. That's another story. But Linux, which is a public piece of software that anyone can inspect, um, is what runs Apple's, and why Apple's, on the whole, still remain much more robust than other PCs, because the software is... It's a little like Wikipedia. Wikipedia remains good and truthful, because everybody can see it and everybody can edit it. And... This is, many people didn't think this was going to be true. It's one of the great positive stories of our time, that an encyclopedia that everybody can edit turns out to be basically truthful. A lot of people were afraid that Wikipedia would be full of falsehood. There are falsehoods, there are malicious lies in there, but they tend to get edited out. And on all the tests of Wikipedia against the Encyclopedia Britannica, Wikipedia comes out better. And a bit's the same with software. If software is open and scrutable, inspectable, adaptable, public in a way that Wikipedia is for text, this tends to lead to, in some ways, safer and better consequences. It would certainly make it much harder for malevolent AI to store bad secret software in closed machines where you couldn't see it, which is what everybody's afraid of with Huawei, the Chinese 5G uh, system, which the government's still debating. The 
exploited, that enclosed systems that you can't get at, who knows what's in there. If that software were open and could be inspected by any team of programmers anywhere, it would be almost impossible, not impossible, but much harder to hide any kind of malicious activity. Um, uh, there's a quote, big quote from Jan Polsky there, which you've probably been reading, that anybody concerned with malevolent AI would be promoting and backing closed hardware and software systems. So it's a very technical point, perhaps a little geeky, but that is an important underlying question in the production and development of machines and software that will be related to the questions we've been talking about here. Um, don't believe the claimed a priori limitations on AI. I'm trying to turn into my sort of positive person here because I'm basically positive about these things, I'm sure you've gathered. Um, lots of the publicity you hear about artificial intelligence, I believe is largely false. Um, I give you quotes, uh, examples. Automated cars, will, I believe automated cars will be a huge success and bring enormous changes to our lives. They'll use less fuel, they will have less accidents, they'll, they'll give you lots of time to drink cocktails in the back seat and read newspapers and, and uh, study and work. Um, of course, every time there's an accident with an automated car, almost every time, it gets in the news and they say, look, you killed somebody. One of those accidents happened only 10 miles from where I work in Florida, uh, or did work till recently. Uh, 10 miles on the road in Williston, an automated car tried to pass underneath uh, a truck it shouldn't have done, and uh, it got it wrong and killed the passenger. But of course, <laughs> the silly thing about this argument is, think of all the people that real drivers would have killed in the meantime. I mean, we don't have publicity about people killing people on the roads, because nearly all road accidents, not all, nearly all road accidents are human error. There'll be far less of those automated cars. They won't make many mistakes. Okay. Um, the Turing test and, and chatbots are relevant. Some people use the arguments of there being chatbots and being deployed for pornography or for business front ends where you talk to them, that, that these are all dreadful. They're not. They're actually quite useful. I mean, uh, chatbots have now got to a point where a lot of people get a lot of benefit from talking to them about their virgin flight. They don't answer everything. If they don't answer your questions right, you find a person. But often it's easy to talk to a machine and they're easy to get at because humans don't answer the phone. Um, and so on. There's whole masses of stuff here. In logic, there's very powerful stuff about decidability. Ah, I have to stop. Um, are we 50 in already? Okay. Um, let me, let me finish with this. This is a, a man who I think has said very sensible things. Um, you can read it if you want to, but I'll tell you what it says very quickly. Um, he's saying that AI-enhanced technologies might still be extremely dangerous, um, but what... And they'll ampl amplify forms of human stupidity. But there's all kinds of other things we need to worry about. There's all kinds of other technologies that we have that... that threaten to make everything cheaper and faster, but are at least as dangerous as AI, and we should focus there. We, we may, by focusing on AI, be throwing our um, worries about technology in the wrong place. There's all kinds of other bits of technology that can do us harm. Um, that's what politics is about, politics and science together. I mean, climate, of course, is the obvious case. It's got nothing to do with AI. Um, you know, much of our industry is very dangerous to us. We know that. Much of the health system is very dangerous to us. We know that. We tolerate it because of its benefits. These, there are many other places where we should be focusing on, um, on dangerous technology and we shouldn't take it all out on AI. I remain utterly positive, I don't know if I've convinced you today, that the benefits from AI will be far greater than the harms and we should stay cheerful. Um, on which note, self-puffery this week is a book coming out by me. So if you feel in the need for a piece of easy read on artificial intelligence, that will be in the bookstores this week. Thank you.